This podcast is part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club, a program designed to help all podcasts reach their full potential. For information about joining the Robots Radio Rocket Club, check out robotsradio.net. Hey, all you heroes and champions, crows, pirates, and inquisitors. Welcome to the Dragon Age Lorecast. I'm Shelby. And I'm Austin. And we are so excited to bring you this podcast. Every episode, we'll be talking about a different topic in the Dragon Age universe. From the Maker to Lyrium to Aravels, we will cover it all. There will be spoilers. And always remember, swooping is bad. Hey, Shelby. Hey, Austin. You ready to talk about some Dragon Age? I am. Well, last week we talked about the Chantry or the Orlesian Chantry, as we did specify. So what are we talking about today? Well, today we're talking about the Imperial Chantry, which is the opposite of the Orlesian Chantry in a lot of ways. Yes, yes, it is. So when does, I guess we, we covered this last week, but remind us for this, when does the Imperial Chantry, when does that kind of come about? Well, I mean, tech, if you want to be technical which I tend to want to be. Um, the Imperial Chantry is, I would argue, older than the Orlesian Chantry because they are a group that was founded with Hesarian, who was at one point the Archon of Tevinter and Hesarian. If you're a history nerd and you remember from our previous episode, Hesarian is um, the Archon at the time where Andraste is betrayed and burned at the stake, and he's the one who actually kills her. He stabs her in an act of mercy so she wouldn't have to, you know, be alive while being burned on the stake. Um, so about 10 years after this happens, he is, like, overcome with, with kind of guilt about accepting, you know, Mafrath's deal and really betraying her, and he makes all of that knowledge public, um, and then converts to Venter to Androstianism. Um, and I don't know exactly what year that is, but it's a few hundred years before the beginning of the Divine Age, which is technically when the Orlesian Chantry begins. And we can talk about how, and we will talk about how. They were kind of the same, and they weren't, but they were, and then they officially split, and all of that later. But, you know, they have two kind of pretty separate foundings, so I think that's significant. All right, well, before we get into more history, let's get your uh, fun facts. Hey, you're the one who asked about the I know, I know, <laughs> I just realized I kind of derailed us. That's okay. So I just have a few fun facts today, and some of them are not that fun. Um, maybe we should call them trivia instead. But anyway, so the Imperial Chantry is a Tevinter group that follows the teachings of Andraste and the Maker, and they were officially declared a heretical group by the Orlesian Chantry. They are the largest and most significant of all of the heretical groups. And we'll talk about some of the other heretical groups in a future episode. Um, you may know this one, but the Tevinter, the Imperial Chantry, does not recognize the divine from the Orlesian Chantry. And the Orlesian Chantry does not recognize the divine of the Imperial Chantry. Instead, they each elect their own divine. Um, 
who is always a man, and the Orlesians refer to the Taventer divine as the black divine, which is an insult, and the Taventers refer to the Orlesian divine as the white divine, which is also an insult. And then um, mages of the Imperial Chantry, they do believe that blood magic was first learned from the ancient elves of Elvenon rather than the old gods. However, there's really not enough evidence to prove this either way, even though I think Solus would maybe suggest um, that it might that might be true. Um, but like we talked about last week, we, I think Austin and I are both in agreement that there's truth in, in all of these sides and there's not necessarily one correct answer. Um, but that is what the Imperial Chantry believes. There's also my prevalent theory prevalent prevalent, whatever theory that the old gods and the forgotten ones are the same yes 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 there is that theory um and then my last fun fact then this is not this is the one that makes me say these are not fun facts um but the imperial chantry receives a tithe every time a slave is sold into venter ew yeah, so that, and I put that in there because I think that that really illustrates how tied to to Venter culture and to Venter laws and just like their ways of being in the world the Imperial Chantry is. And, you know, I think you can say that for the Orlesian Chantry and the rest of Southern Thetis, but I just don't think they take it to the same extreme. Yeah. So those are all my fun facts for today. I just have a lot of thoughts about the Imperial Chantry. Already. Yeah. Well, I want to like, there's still so much we don't know about the Imperial Chantry. And we don't know how much is true or propaganda from the Orlesian Chantry. That's true. And I think Dorian helps with that perspective a lot um, because you can kind of compare what he says. Right. And there are some things that we learn from him, but yeah. But it's yeah. just, it's so, the games do not set you up to have a high view of Tevinter. No. In general, like, they're always kind of like the way the game set it up. The Dorian is really the first person like from Tevinter that we meet. That's not a slaver really or a blood mage. Definitely the first main character. Yeah. Um, well, and actually I'll say, I think all, I could be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure that all of the characters that we meet from Tevinter that are not slaveholders or, blood mages or like abominations or just generally terrible people we all meet them in we meet them all in dai right and this also i mean i guess friendress is technically from deventer whatever you want to say i guess i guess that's true but i don't know if he would call himself deventer mm-hmm. right um so yeah well let's let's get into history and I'll save my many thoughts until the end. Sure. Well, uh, we're, we usually go to scr- structure first before history, but we don't really know anything um, about the structure of the Imperial Chantry. And 
I say that because, I mean, we can guess that they would be structured similarly to the Orlesian Chantry, but we don't know that for certain, so I didn't want to assume that. So I, I just said, we don't know. We don't know much about the structure. Also, um, well, I guess this is true in the Orlesian Chantry, but in the Imperial Chantry, I forgot about this, the Black Divine is almost always a mage. We'll get there later. Yeah. But yeah. All right. Um, so, yeah, let's do some history. Um, so, like I mentioned earlier, 10 years after Andraste's death, Archon Hesarian started converting formally um, to venture to Andrastianism. And um, he does this by publicly revealing what Mafrath had done, his betrayal. Um, so, he declares the Maker to be the one true God. And makes Androstianism the institutional state religion of Tevinter. And really most of the people in power, so the ruling mages and magisters, as well as leaders in the circles, they did not like this. Um, they refused to convert. They were not fans of Androstianism. And basically they just said no and continued worshipping the old gods. But the regular people of Tevinter, the slaves... Just your everyday non-magical people. They overwhelmingly supported Hesarian. So this is a real big turning point, I think, in Tevinter history where some of the divides that they have in their country start to become overwhelming. Um, some of these divides, especially this one, starts becoming something that national identity can't you can't just plaster over right 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 it's kind of like similar when you see because we've gone on this thing of comparing the chantry to christianity especially like pre-protestant reformation christianity um it's the similar thing in the eastern versus the western church so like what i mean by eastern is like Constantinople and South Southwest Asia, I guess, is where we're at. And kind of Russia and all of that, they develop differently and start valuing different things than the Church of Rome. And it rises to tension to where they're really different denominations. And they are today. Yes. Yeah, that's true. And it's it's similar. So, um, after Hesarian's like, formal conversion of the country, uh, a lot of bloodshed followed, as you can imagine. And, like, large swaths of the non-mage and slave, slave populations were just killing mages and magisters. Um, especially those who remain loyal to the old gods. Um, so this is really a period of change and instability and violence. And... In Tevinter history, this is referred to as the Transfiguration. I don't think we have time to discuss the use of that word. And Bioware, I'm sorry, but that word doesn't mean what you think it means. <laughs> okay, tell us what it means from your, your religious perspective. So the Transfiguration is an event in the Christian Bible where Jesus and some of his disciples, they go up on a mountain... And they have this vision with Jesus where he's ascended into the clouds and Moses and Elijah come and they're like 
sitting on his sides and all that. And it's really kind of a marking of like Jesus as divine, really. Which I feel like Bioware here is using the word transfiguration in a sense of like the transformation of Tementor. Which... Yeah, like it's just a big change. And this is a big point in Christian theology. The transfiguration is not a transformation of Jesus. Like even it's a reveal yeah a revealing which so like it's revealing what is already there in jesus and so to use transfiguration to kind of mean a transformation of a culture is not what the word means or the event means to play devil's advocate a little bit i think you can argue that that is the correct use because um, in Tevinter, they're revealing these fractures that already existed, right? Between the regular everyday population, the slaves and the non-mage population and the magisters. Um, and, you know, I think that that's, that's not something that's new. That divide isn't something that's, um, that's new. It's something that's always been there. And so I think that you can argue that the use of the word transfiguration in this context is a revealing of some of the deeper issues in the Imperium at this time. It's also one of those things of Bioware saying, no, we did not take inspiration from the Christian church for the Chantry. And then they go and use words like that. That word is never really used outside of Christian context. That's fair. You're so angry about it. Just be <laughs> honest. Just, just be honest. Just <laughs> say where you got the influence from. I mean, it probably wasn't intentional, you know? Right. It's really easy to draw inspiration from things without knowing that you're doing that until afterwards, until it's already happened. But to use words like that? Well, I mean, that's fair, but we also don't know exactly, like, when that... Um, I don't remember exactly where... That reference comes from, so we don't know if that's from Inquisition or Origins or whatever. And those are two really different periods in Bioware's history as well as Dragon Age's history. That's true, but I don't want to derail us a little bit too much. But I just thought that word was interesting because it's a big, it's, yeah, it is. it's a big moment in the story of Jesus for Christians. So, And it's a big moment in Tevinter history too. Mm-hmm. Well, let's move on. Um so when Emperor Draken of Orlais begins to establish the Chantry, um, the Tevinter worshippers of Andraste were, in a word, pissed. Um, like, they saw themselves as, like, their version of the Holy Land, which is ironic. Um, they saw themselves as um, the people who had been worshipping Andraste for the longest. And so... They saw themselves as the rightful heir of whatever form this religion would take. So pretty much from the get-go, there's a lot of tension there. Um, I, I, I see that take from Tevinter. I also think that's ironic because they're also the ones that killed her. Um, they're also the ones that she fought against with her whole life. So it's an ironic well, take to me. I don't know what you think. Think about Vatican City. And the city of Rome. What about and the it? city of Rome? And like this is lofted up as this huge holy place in Christianity when it was the Roman Empire that killed Jesus and the Roman Empire that Jesus was 
you know, speaking against in a lot of ways. I mean, you can argue he's also speaking against the religious leaders of his time, but he has a lot to say about how the Roman authorities treat the people of his time. That's true, but Jesus wasn't crucified in Rome. No, he was not. He was crucified outside of Jerusalem. So, anyway, we got to move on <laughs> from but it the, is, the Christianity But metaphor. it is ironic because if anyone has a claim to say that they've been worshipping Andraste the longest, it's the Avar and the Alamari. Worship, though? Or just, like, respected as a leader? I think it's probably a little bit of both. I think that there are probably people among the Avar and Alamari who are... who would have fallen into that kind of worship category. Or if you want to... if you really want to get into this, it's like... well, that's also a thing. Because the elves... They also kind of, Shartan and his followers, they keep their, they keep to their elven heritage of their gods, but they also see this, see, kind of have faith and put that in Andraste as well. I definitely don't think the elves worshipped Andraste in this situation. I think that they, like, respected her and saw her as, like, a person who joined them in their liberation, but I definitely don't think that they saw her as a, as a god. Because that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about people who see her as a god. Right. Um, and I don't think that the elves or the Alamari or the Avar would agree with that statement. And even Tevinter comes to not agree with that statement later on. Right. So, um, so over the years, the two chantries really continued to diverge in teachings. And of course, that means that they increased in tensions with one another. Um, they disagreed about magic and the old gods and the role of men in the chantry. That widens over the years. Um, all of these things, they just, they continue to um, be more and more at conflict with one another. Um, so combine that religious disagreement with political and state disagreements um, and an exalt, all, multiple exalted marches. And obviously we know that that is not going to end well for the Chantry. Um, so an official split happens, as we could have predicted. Um, and this officially happens in 387 Towers when Divine Joyous II learned fully of um, Tevinter's um, views specifically on magic and um, how they interpreted the chant of light differently. And we've talked about that before, specifically the last episode. So if you want more information on that, go back and listen to that episode first. Um, but before they really formally split, there were a lot of things that they that they both tried to do to appease each other. Specifically, I think more to Venter trying to appease Orlais. Um, but so some of these things um, relate to how the religion relates to the state or the country. So previously, um, the Archon, which is like the head ruler of Tevinter, was also the head of the Chantry. So that means he's ruling the country and the religion at the same time. Um, and this was really, this was a big thing for Orlais. They didn't like that. And so it was changed so that the leadership of the Imperial Chantry would then be in the hands of, of the Grand Clerics of Tevinter. And they added a divine in there too. But despite repeated petitions, the Orlesian Chantry refused to recognize the Tevinter Grand Clerics because 
they allowed men into the priesthood, who the Orlesian Chantry judged unfit for the priesthood due to Mafrath's betrayal. So this is really a two-pronged reason for the split, I think. You know, the role of men obviously is part of it, but I think even more important than that is the role of the archon, of being the leader of the state and the church at the same time, you know. And even though he steps aside, they still find another excuse to not approve what they've done. So there's a lot of reasons um, for the split, and and these are just a few that we've mentioned. Do you think that it comes back to that tension between Orle and Taventer is politically is really what's keeping this on and that Orle does not want to the Orlesian Chantry does not want to link themselves with the Taventer Chantry because of the political ratifications. No, I really think that if if you took one of the things away, like if it was still if they still had the political differences and the chantry didn't exist they would still be at odds with one another and the flip side is if you took away the political tension i think that the theological differences and the history of andraste herself is enough for the two chantries to be at odds with one another right so i think that would exist either way no matter which way you cut it i think that's gonna be a thing we obviously have talked about the views on magic and how they're different their priesthood being men and how that's different, the black divine, the relationship of the archon. My biggest thing that I want to know about, and I've only ever gotten a little bit of information on this, how do Templars function in Tevinter? Because with the Chantry established, there has to be circles, which mm-hmm. means there has to be some form of Templar there. Um, well, get ready for some mind-blowing information. Um, we decided to put, uh, we decided not actually to separate the Imperial Chantry and the Imperial Templar episodes just because we don't know enough about the Imperial Templars to kind of justify its own episode. So we're just going to spend a few minutes now talking about all this. So you're right. Uh, Tevinter does have circles but they exist more as schools than what they're like in the rest of Thetis. Um, I definitely think the rest of Thetis should take a page out of Taventer's book for how to structure the circles, Um, but I'm off topic. So they do exist and they're controlled by high-ranking magisters instead of Templars. the Imperial Templar Order falls under the authority of the Magisters, and therefore they fall under the authority of the Circle of Magi. So, um, as we talked about, I think in our Seekers episode, uh, Lord Seeker Lambert basically has said that the Templars have no power whatsoever in Tevinter, which I don't necessarily disagree with. I think he's right. Um... So, basically, their main role in Tevinter is to enforce imperial law. So, they're really just like your everyday police force. And they can still intervene if a mage, like, uses blood magic or forbidden blood magic, I should say. And they do retain the right of annulment, but they usually only act against mages who are weak 
or who have fallen out of favor with the magisters. So again, this is something that's very political. Um, and then it, I think it's important to add that Taventer does not consider moderate use of blood magic inherently dangerous or forbidden so long as it is restricted to the use of your own blood or the blood of someone who is a willing participant. Now, the pessimist in me says, well, then that just translates later on into them becoming extreme because that they're never satisfied with enough power. Um, but that's the pessimist in me. To venture, people would probably um, disagree with that statement. But, ha- but also, how does a slave be a will- willing participant? Right, they can't. They can't. There's a power dynamic there that they just can't. Um, okay, so the really, I think the biggest thing to know about Imperial Templars is that the majority of them lack the ability to counter magic. This would suggest that they don't ingest lyrium and that they're primarily utilized as soldiers or a police force. Um, in fact, it's pretty often that modern Taventer mages, when they meet Templars in the rest of Thetis outside of Taventer, they find themselves bewildered when they witness their magic being nullified by non-imperial Templars because they've never previously encountered such an ability within their homeland. It's interesting because, like, it makes total sense, like... Why would somewhere that is basically a major mageocracy, why would they waste a resource like lyrium on non-mages? But also like why would they why would they give a force of warriors that kind of power over everyone in their political structure, even their divine? Right. That makes total sense. They yeah, they wouldn't. So there's that. And then another key difference uh, between Imperial Templars and their Southern counterparts is that there's no Taventer equivalent for the Seekers, um, which, as we know, provides oversight for both Templars and Mages throughout the rest of Thetis. Um, and few, if any, Taventer citizens even know that the Seekers exist in the first place. So all of that is to say that Imperial Templars are really just soldiers. Um, there's there's not anything special about them that allows them to fight mages in a more effective or efficient way, like Southern uh, Southern Templars. Yeah, this makes sense. Why you know Taventer has never really been successful in repelling the exalted marshes from the Orlesian Chantry because. All you really need to kind of render them useless is an army and then just interspersed Templars and Seekers. And the yeah, Taventer mages aren't going to know what to do. True. That's true. Um, so my last little thing that I have to talk about with the Templars is actually less about Templars and more about mages. Um, but, you know, Templars and Taventer are very much like bribable um they're very political they're not like they're not an honorable order from everything that i've read they're um they do what's best for them not what's best for the people and so um in special cases or with sufficient bribes 
um, to venter Templars will step aside and unique mages who are known as Justicars may step in and take over for the investigating Templars. There, add that to your list of... My list, my running list of Mass Effect and Dragon Age crossovers. Words, yep. Yeah, words, people, voice actors have got it all. Right. Um, yeah, so I, I find that extremely interesting. Well, and it's also a similar function because the Justicars and Asari, they kind of... Right. They exist to, like, step in and take over investigations, particularly... And this is a different lore cast, so go listen to the Mass Effect mm-hmm. lore cast hosted by <laughs> Sam and Tom. That is a great one. Um, but they mainly deal with Ardek Yakshi, which are, like, super dangerous. Right. Asari. So it's kind of interesting. Similar words, similar function. It's very interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all I have for the history and about the Imperial Templars. You want to head to our break? Yes, I do. All right. Let's take our break. Fellow survivors, Vault 76ers, patriotic Americans, this is Lieutenant Colonel Valeria of the New Enclave. Follow our stories as our cast of characters emerge from the White Springs bunker to face an uncertain future in an Appalachia overrun with monsters. But as I always say, the wasteland isn't going to tame itself. Join us here on the Modus Files. We can be found on any Enclave sanctioned network, including Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and more. Keep your Pip-Boys handy and listen for further instructions. Valeria out. So, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around this. I'm listening. Ah, you've returned. A letter arrived for you. All right. So welcome to the mid-show, where we just talk about everything about the podcast. Um, just wanted to remind you that we are on Patreon. If you would like to support us that way, you can go to Patreon. Uh, you can find the link down in the description. There are different tiers with different benefits. You can go and see all of that there. Um, also, another way to support us a great way is to leave us a review, either on Apple Podcasts or Spotify uh, Podcasts. Uh, if you leave us some words on Apple and a five-star review, we'll read them out on a future episode of the show. I don't think we have any reviews to read this week, Shelby. We do. Oh, we, we do. One. I was wrong. Look at me. Yes, we do have one. And this one's from Whitney Blaine. And the title is Just What I Needed. Five stars. I am fully immersed in the Dragon Age world at the moment, and finding a podcast dedicated to lore has been amazing. The hosts are well-informed, and I enjoy their banter and chemistry. Thank you, Whitney. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much. All right, we also want you, we are still doing our uh, show us your heroes, hawks, and heralds. And so, Shelby, do we have one to share this week? We do. Okay, so... Today's hero, <laughs> today's hero is from Billy A in our Discord. And um, so, about Billy's hero. So, Warden Eliza Kuzland is a saucy, red-headed noblewoman who spends her days, much to her mother's horror, among the rogues and rakish figures of the taverns. 
She has no plans to settle into the gentle life of a Terran's daughter or to be betrothed to any man who doesn't allow her to do what she wants. She is a rogue who recruited and kept all players, somehow becoming friends with Morrigan without the use of a desire demon. She saved Connor. She brokered a peace between the wool, um, the werewolves and the elves. She defeated Bronca to destroy the anvil. She sided with the mages. She won Zevran's love and broke Alistair's heart when she realized it would never work out. She helped elect Honora to the throne, killed the archdemon with her own hands, and allowed Morrigan to conceive an old god baby with Loghain himself. After the events of the game, she leaves the Wardens and sets for the seas with Zevran, linking up with Isabella, and the three remain in a romantic triad for some time before a rift happens between them, uh, goaded by Isabella, of course, who supposedly sold Zevran out to the crows, while, and they are now looking for him. After that, Eliza joins the crows herself in order to settle his debt once and for all, which causes them to break up as well, as over the years he's come to recognize the horror of his upbringing as an Antiban crow. She sounds like an awesome hero, and Billy, I'm so glad you yeah. shared her with us. Thank you. Yes, yes, thank you so much. And as you can, as you can always do, you can show us your heroes, heralds, and hawks. I did that in the wrong order but we'll get that. <laughs> um, and so you can send them to us, join our discord, which you can find in the description. You can send them to us via email at dalorecast at gmail.com. Or if you're so kind, you could message us on Twitter with that as well. So Shelby, you ready to get back into the episode? No, I'm not because you didn't read out the names of our patrons. Oh, I didn't. You're right. Okay. So the names of our patrons uh shelby you want to read it um yeah sure okay so our patrons are lisa m genesis derek b and fletcher m we're so thankful for you supporting us and as a reminder y'all we still have our patreon promotion going on where the first five patrons will be read out regardless of tier on the show forever and ever and ever and ever so I just read out four names. That means we've got one more slot left. So if you really love our show and want your name to be read out every single week, you better hop on it and become our fifth patron pretty quick. Yes. All right. Now are we ready to go back into the episode? I do believe we are. All right. All right. Hello, gentle listener. Every Friday, be sure to tune in. To what the a- hell are you doing, oh. Ampersand? <laughs> Hi, Charlie. I'm sorry I broke in. I thought I was the only one to talk to myself. Well, I'm letting everyone know about the Fumbling Four and the Almighty Crit. It's a 5e live play podcast. Join us every week. Where do we find it, you old crusty coot? Uh, anywhere you can get all your podcasts. Whee-hoo! Find it every Friday, you stupid cat! <laughs> My friend. You fear barbarians will swoop down upon you. Yes, swooping is bad. Yeah, this is gonna be fun. So now we're gonna get into the juicy stuff. And what I mean by juicy stuff is their basic teachings and theology of the Imperial Chantry. 
So here's when we get to really just like talk about what we think about it. So first up, men are allowed to become priests and they embrace magic at all levels in the imperial chantry. And even further, the black divine is always a man and he is always a mage and is always a member of a circle of magi. Interesting. Um, it is interesting. But he does not have to come from the magisterium. Um, technically, I, I don't believe so, but uh, I think it would be very unlikely for him to not come from the magisterium. Right. Um, so similar to the Orlesian Chantry, um, the Imperial Divine is elected by the Grand Clerics, usually from within their own ranks, but... Whereas the Orlesian Divine is chosen through a unanimous vote at the Grand Consensus, the Imperial Divine is just elected by a simple majority. In the case of a tie, the Archon casts the deciding vote. And the Imperial Divine does occupy a seat on the Magisterium. So the, div- so the path to Divine, if you made it to become Black Divine could earn you a spot on the magisterium when otherwise you wouldn't have gotten one. Yes, but I got one more thing to say about that before we before we decide if that's true. So Archon Nomoran in the Storm Age lifted the rules prohibiting mages from participating in politics. This is an important thing in Tevinter history, but it happened a long time ago. Um, so since then, the Imperial Divine has always come from within the ranks of the first enchanters and as such operates as the Grand Enchanter. I would imagine that all of the first enchanters already have a seat on the Magisterium. I would imagine. You're probably right. Granted, we don't know that for certain, but I'm just assuming. I guess my question is, is like, and this is something that we can talk about in a different episode if we need to, but Cassandra, Vivian, and Liliana are in Running for Divine Solely because all of the suitable candidates died at the conclave. Yes, that's right. So the divine normally comes from the grand clerics in Orlais. Yeah. Well, no, not in Orlais. Throughout Southern Thetis. Oh, right, 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 right. Sorry, I forgot that the Orlesian Chantry is really the Southern Chantry. Uh, Yeah. And so that's just interesting to me because it's possible if they follow a similar structure like that, it's possible for the Black Divine to come from outside of the first enchanters. Kind of like, you know, the election of Pope, it's really rare, but like the Pope does not have to come from a cardinal. It's likely they come from a cardinal. Pope Francis didn't come from a cardinal. Is that right? I believe believe so. I do not think he was a cardinal. Anyway. Yeah, it's similar to that. Yeah. Like, there's no official rule against it, but the tradition has been that way for so long, it's kind of inconceivable for it to be any right. other way. And it creates a kind of glass ceiling where it's hard for someone who yeah. isn't from that to get into there. Yeah, and also, you know, because the Divine is always a man in Tevinter, I would imagine that most of the uh, most of the Grand Clerics and First Enchanters in Tevinter would also be men, because then that, that leaves you a greater pool of people who can become Divine. So that's, you know, that's really disenfranchising to the women of Tevinter. Right. Well, Tevinter is no stranger to disenfranchisement, so... That is accurate. Can you tell... We don't like to venture. 
Um, okay, so let's move on a little bit into, I think, some of the interest, more interesting teachings. So, so the Chantry of Orle believes that Andraste was fully divine and was taken up to stand beside the Maker when she died. But the Imperial Chantry maintains that she was just a mortal prophet with considerable magical talent, even if she is a symbol of hope. The Imperial Chantry does still respect and honor Andraste considerably, but they technically forbid worship of her that is practiced in the Orlesian Chantry and instead focus only on worshiping the Maker. It's so interesting because you could, you could argue in Taventer that Taventer worships magic. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Which is so funny because we don't believe either. You and I argue that neither Chantry truly worships the Maker. Because mm-hmm. in practice, the Orlesian Chantry worships Andraste. Right, absolutely. The Imperial Chantry, I would argue, worships magic because it is, mm-hmm. even though they changed the Archon and Divine thing, it's still so linked to the politics of Tevinter. Yes. And I think that really gets back to, I think that other than the Divine, I think that, I think that they could coexist with a difference in the Divine nature of Andraste. Because, like, they don't, the religion chantry, at least in what I've experienced, don't put Andraste on an equal pedestal with the baker in terms of divinity. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, so I think they could probably learn to coexist. But this next belief about magic, they will never reconcile if and hold these two competing d- beliefs. Right. Because it goes against everything that they believe with each other. I was just going to say, just for a review, let's overview what they actually believe about magic. Yeah, so this is, I think you're right, this is the greatest source of conflict between the Imperial and Orlesian Chantries. And it's the interpretation of this line in the Chant of Light. Magic exists to serve man and never to rule over him. So in Tevinter, the clerics preach that magic must serve the greater good and not control the minds of other people. So this line in the chant of light is accomplished only through mage-led governmental systems. Orlesians, on the other hand, interpret this line to mean that magic should be watched over and controlled and that magic users should be watched and controlled never given positions of power. Obviously, Taventer super, super disagrees with this. And they have a mageocracy, a government ruled by mages. Even back in the Towers Age, even back when all when they were trying to like figure out all of their beliefs, even then, Taventer had a mageocracy. So, Taventer, they really interpret this line as like, oh, we just need to help people. We just need to, you know, make sure that magic is helping us and um, like helping us in how we live our lives. It's for the greater good. It's not something that's dangerous to them. It's not something that should be watched or controlled. 
And it leads to an interesting dynamic that we could get in Dragon Age 4, especially if we get a similar mechanic to import world states. If you make Vivian divine, that's a big change for the Chantry. And arguably, you could argue is a more just change for mages than either Cassandra or Liliana. Because, as you and I both know in like representation, having one of your own at the seat of the table of power is a huge step towards justice and ending oppression of your people. You're right, but Vivian is so, so conservative in her views toward mages. I'm not sure that any progress would even be right, made. Right, there is that. But I'm sure that it might, it could either ease tensions between the Imperial Chantry and the Religion Chantry, or it could exasperate them make, make them, them way worse, worse of them being like who the hell you filthy hypocrites you have told us all this time that we can't this whole magic thing and here you are electing an a mage divine but but not even that i think it would be more of like looking at vivian and seeing her as a mage seeing her as one of them almost and then being like and yet you continue to oppress mages, yet you continue to treat mages as second-class citizens. You're the hypocrite. Right. So I think that it's it's definitely the biggest tension that I think is probably the most irreconcilable. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> At the same time, though, if if Liliana becomes divine, she's basically like, free all the elves! Like, the elves can do everything! We love them! So I can't imagine that would ingratiate themselves to Tevinter right. either. And it's interesting, like, the differences in their interpretations of the Chant of Light totally make sense with their culture. Like, of course they're not going to say that mages have to be you know, subservient and watched and controlled because their entire government is based on mages having power. They would have to restructure their right. entire society. Furthermore, they're going to blame elves for blood magic because they already oppress the elves to a greater extent than the Orlesian or Ferelden societies or free marches do. And so... Which is really it saying is. something. And so they're going to use that as a way to say like, well... We can treat, just like, just like the Orlesian Chantry uses, oh, well, Tevinter Magisters created the Blight, so we need to control mages. Oh, you elves created blood magic. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's definitely, like, a geopolitical mess. And you know, I'm a we're huge Fenris simps, so that colors our six or view of Tevinter. And so, mm -hmm. but okay, but still, like you can't argue that slavery is yeah. okay no. in Tevinter. Like you, you just can't do that. Like it's just no. And if you do, I'm sorry. I don't want you listening yeah. to our podcast. That's true. And it's it's so hard. I stand by that. If you're okay with slavery, like, unfollow us. I'm it's fine so with it. It's so hard to divorce their view of magic and their practice of slavery and the rest of their government. So you can't, you can't really say, it's hard to say, like, only Tevinter 
political people do this and Tevinter mages are different because it's all interconnected. Right. Which is where I get like one of my biggest beefs with Anders is his idolization of Tevinter. Right, because right. he's a mage. And I, I, I will say, I don't think Tevinter has everything wrong. I think there is some, there are some things that we can Their whole thing them. of circles being schools, I'm all for that. Yeah, absolutely. Which absolutely. is why I almost always send Fainreal to Tevinter. Because I think yes. it's the best place for Me too. Him. I agree. Well, let's move on a little bit because we're getting off topic again. Um, so my last teaching that I brought about the Imperial Chantry is about pride. And we talked about this a lot last week um, and how the Orlesian Chantry blames human pride for like the second sin and the creation of the dark spawn and all that. Um, the Imperial Chantry doesn't blame human pride. They blame the old gods themselves um, for human humanity's corruption rather than this like inherent flaw in human nature. So they really see it as the fault of the old gods because the old gods are the ones that begin whispering to the humans. And again, this is this is another thing that I think Tevinter is right on. Um, I definitely think there is something to be said about human pride and human arrogance. But at the same time, the old gods are the ones that started it. They are the ones that begin whispering. Um, so I, I agree. I tend to agree with Tevinter on this one. Right. Well, do you have any last thoughts about Tevinter, about the Imperial Chantry, about the Imperial Templars, or anything else we've talked about tonight um, before we move into our side character? I am really excited to get a little bit more of it in the next Dragon Age game. Um, and excited I made there. I will read those codex entries so fast. Um, and I think that (laughs) really just seeing it firsthand will be really helpful in broadening the worldview of Thetis and an already Mm -hmm. huge world expanding it and showing us a different group of people because Dorian really challenges our view of Tevinter. Um, and how he talks. Absolutely. And I don't think Dorian, I wouldn't call Dorian a Tevinter apologist, even though he kind of is, because he's so willing to say, like, no, Tevinter has this wrong. Tevinter is doing this wrong. Um, yeah, I don't think he's an apologist at all. I think he is a right. Tevinter, you know, and he's very much in a phase where he's, like, trying to figure out who Tevinter is, who Tevinter can be, what makes them good and what makes them bad, and... That's a really hard process to go through about your And I think that you can really, really see Dorian's character in how he interacts with Sarah. And yes, he is elitist and prissy to Sarah in a lot of ways, but he does not treat Sarah like a servant or expecting her to be a servant. That's true. Which I think says a lot to his character. I agree with that. And I also think that if he did treat her in that way, he would have an arrow. I think that he would too. And maybe he knows that, uh, (laughs) but, but he's, he's also not that way to you as an inquisitor. If you are an elf. Also true. Also true. Well, any final thoughts? I'm ready ready to move move on? on. Let's get this side character. Okay. So today's side character is one you probably haven't heard of. Um, and it's Divine Urian. 
Um, and I think I'm going to pronounce this wrong, so just bear with me. Divine Urian Nihalius. And he is the current divine of the Imperial Chantry. And he has been since 927 Dragon. So, in 917 Dragon, uh, Urian, not divine yet, he was a magister of the Imperium at this time, and he accompanied a group of Imperial Templars as they chased a group of apostates close to the border with Orlay. They were then confronted by a group of Southern Templars who had been hunting the very same apostates. This situation very much could have devolved into a political disaster, but the Southern Templars' leader was Lambert Van Reeves, and he managed to defuse tensions through negotiations. So, this won him Urian's admiration, and they became friends. And if you remember from our Seekers episode, you might know what's, what's coming next. Um, in 921, Magister Urian personally requested that Lambert be named a Seeker Liaison to the Tevinter Imperium. And so he was tasked with aiding them in, the, in, the, in their investigations of magical corruption. But Lambert grew frustrated with his job, with the scope of his task, and the many obstacles that were placed in his way. So his friendship with Urian really began to suffer from this. Um, and, and this is also when Urian begins moving up the ranks. Um, he begins moving closer and closer to becoming divine, which again, if you remember from our Seekers episode, this means he becomes closer and closer to using blood magic. And then eventually he does start using blood magic. And this is really what ends the friendship between Lambert and Urian. So... Eventually, in 927, with the help of several other high-ranking magisters, a select group of Templars, and Sir Lambert himself, Urian arrests the current Imperial Divine and five of the highest-ranking magisters in Minrathus, and they do this all in one single night. After the resulting trial, Magister Urian assumed the title of Imperial Divine and led a violent purge of the Imperial Chantry. Lambert reluctantly continued to serve as liaison to Tevinter until 931, which is when it became apparent that Divine Urian had formally, officially, fully become a blood mage and was no longer rooting out magical corruption. So this is four years after he becomes divine. It doesn't even, he doesn't even make it five years until he's like fully, fully into blood magic. And you know what? Say what you want about Seeker Lambert. And I am not, I am not a fan of Lord Seeker Lambert. I do not think he's a good person, but he is a man who stands by his principles. That's fair. And That's I can respect fair. that about an individual. Yeah, that's fair. Well, um, so Divine Urian also clashed with other people, not just Lambert. Um, and one of the most significant is Aurelian Titus. 
and Titus appears in the comics. So does uh, Divine Yuri, and that's where we where we get a lot of this information from the comics. But Aurelian Titus is a dragon cultist who had been gaining more and more power in Tevinter ever since he was granted a seat on the Magisterium in 929. And so they had a lot of conflict. If you're interested in this, go read some of the comics. Um, but the Divine, Divine Urian, uh, really was losing ground in this confrontation between him and Aurelius Titus. Um, Titus had a very solid group of followers. Um, you could even say cultists. And then one day he just kind of disappeared in 940 dragon um so we don't really know what happens to him um at the moment we could with the release of more comics but as we know currently divine urian is the black divine in the imperial chantry and i wish we knew more about him as a young person but we just don't um but i thought he was an important character to highlight because of his role in the Imperial Chantry, and he's really one of the only ones we know. So, that's what I've got about Magister Urian. I think that, uh, it's interesting, I think if you talk with Dorian a little more in the Trespasser DLC, it, it he talk, he mentions Divine Urian briefly because it's a joint effort between him and the Archon of Tevinter that sends him to the, uh, Exalted Council. So I just think that's interesting. So like Divine Urian is obviously concerned with other things that are going on with Thetis. And I'm sure that Tevinter has a vested interest in what will happen with the Inquisition because I'm sure that they don't absolutely. want the Inquisition coming to Tevinter. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I really am... This disappearance of this uh, Titus person, the year, the year mm -hmm. caught my attention. Mm-hmm. 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 Which, if right. you don't know, 940 Dragon is the events of Dragon Age Inquisition. Um, and so, is he connected to Corypheus? Is, did he help Corypheus create his own Blight Dragon? Like, what, who is this person? I need to know more. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I totally right. agree with you. And unfortunately, we just don't right. know much more. But the year, like, that's so... It's not, it can't be a coincidence. No, no, it can't be. I'm sure we'll find out more later. All right. All right. I, well, that's all we got, yeah. I think. All right. Well, this was, I find the Imperial Chantry very interesting, and I hope to learn more about them in coming Dragon Age content. I agree. All right. Well, we'll see you all next week. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Dragon Age Lorecast. As always, you can find us on Twitter at DA Lorecast. If you have any lore questions, topics to unpack, or side character suggestions, email them to us at DALorecast at gmail.com. The Dragon Age Lorecast is a part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club. You can join the Robots Radio Network Discord by clicking the link in our episode description. If you enjoyed our show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe and give us a review. See you next time. 
Have you ever wanted to deep dive into the lore and stories behind all your favorite Marvel movies? Then do we have the show for you. I'm Captain Shanko. And I'm Psych88. Join us as we dissect the media megalith that is the MCU. We'll talk about the origin stories, the fights, and everything in between. The MCU Lorecast releases on all major podcasting platforms on Mondays as part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club and can be found on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.